I am happy to be in the house of the Lord. And um, as I was getting ready to go and do that meeting last weekend, and, and thank you for praying for that meeting in Cleveland, Euclid, it, it really went well. It's a small church. The pastor's been there for 35 years, and uh, he's 70 years old, or just about to turn 70. And he's just doing a really good job. He loves his people, loves the Lord. And I asked him, he, he wanted me to do something on Baptist history or doctrine, and I asked him if he had recently taught the Baptist distinctives. And he said, no, that would be a good thing to do. And I thought if someone asked here, when's the last time Grace Baptist Church heard the Baptist distinctives, it would have been at least five years. So uh, last week I began going through them. We should be able to finish it this week. But you know, those are famous last words for me, of course. Um, you know, my sermons, you can just cut them off like a stick of bologna and then just start the next week and they just keep going. But um, it's really important that we understand some of these things. And I always have to begin, whenever you give an exclusive message, whenever you identify specific doctrines that we would espouse and others would reject, um, you always have to, I feel like now I always need to give this disclaimer. Um, we don't believe that only Baptists will be in heaven. Right? Any saved person is going to be in heaven. And I told you, Dalton Robertson said to a church in Texas, there are more Baptists in Texas than will be in heaven. I thought that was hilarious. Um, when I lived in Tennessee, one of the hardest parts about evangelism was getting the people to understand they're lost. Right? Because you're born and raised in a Baptist church, you've heard the gospel all your life. That doesn't mean you're saved. Because salvation is not, an, not a, a knowledge of facts. Salvation is a point in time where a person places their faith and trust in Christ alone for their eternal life. It's not a general thing that happens where, let's all do this. No, it's me. This is, this is an individual and a personal thing. I can't get saved for anyone else. No one else can get saved for me. Uh, it's, it's a very personal thing. But So, uh, I agree that on, not only Baptists will be in heaven, that it's based on anyone who has placed their faith and trust in Christ alone for their eternal life. Your baptism won't take you to heaven. Your church membership won't take you to heaven. Your good works won't take you to heaven. Uh, only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. That's it. That's the only thing that can do it. So anyone that preaches that message, praise God. I'm thankful for anyone who did it. George Whitfield came to America and preached, You must be born again. He was asked by a reporter, Why do you always preach, You must be born again? And Whitfield said, Because ye must be born again. And that, that was his answer. And he he just preached it over and over and over again. Well, he wasn't a Baptist. Praise God for anybody that got saved through the preaching of George Whitfield. Amen. Uh, D.L. Moody was never scripturally baptized, and he never scripturally baptized anyone else. Praise the Lord for anybody that was saved through D.L. Moody's ministry. Amen. He's not our enemy. We're not mad at him. Um, he just didn't do some things right that he should have. And we'll see in a minute that he will stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and give account for that, we'll give an answer for that, as will we all. We'll give an answer for what we do in the body of Christ. That's what the Bible says. All of us will give an answer. And so the issue is not who has done what, but the issue is what does the Bible say? Amen. What ought we to do? What should we do? And so these Baptist distinctives are characteristics that would make Baptists and Baptist churches distinct from every other Christian sect. Now, let's make this very clear. When I say Christian sect, if a person does not believe 
in the gospel message that I just gave, they are not a Christian. Okay, it's very important that we understand that. Regardless of the sign on the door or on the sign outside the building, it doesn't matter what they call themselves. If they don't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, if they don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, if they don't believe in the virgin birth, if they don't believe in the deity of Christ, if they don't believe in the miracles of the Bible, and if they don't believe in the return of Christ, they're not Christian. And so it's very important that we understand that, that there are a lot of things that call themselves Christian that are not, like the American Civil Liberties Union. All right? The American Civil Liberties Union is against what we would say, that's not American. Okay, so it's very important that we understand these things, and I should be able to demonstrate some of that. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us as we look at this study. And Father, help us to be grounded in your word. Lord, the purpose of this message is not to make us sectarian. The purpose of this message is to demonstrate what is biblical. And then if others want to separate from that, then that is their decision. We choose to be expressly biblical to the best of our understanding as you give us light through your word. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, last week, we looked at... Uh, the, the first of the Baptist distinctives, which is the Bible is our sole authority. The Bible is our sole authority. There are competing authorities in all of Christianity. Uh, there's the, the Bible and tradition. There's the Bible and experience. There's the Bible and scholarship. Or there's just the Bible. And so our authority is simply the Bible. Simply the Bible. Now, I want to make a comment about that. I was, I was listening to a panel discussion by some, some good preachers this week. And um, they were talking about using other sources, uh, whether it's commentaries or theology books, uh, to make sure that what they're saying agrees with the light that God has given other godly men throughout the centuries. Okay, And the idea is if I find something no one else has ever seen, I'm probably wrong. Is that fair? I had a guy... I, 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 I said this, uh, I've said this to several people throughout the years. It's amazing, and I'm so honored to know you because God has bypassed 2,000 years of church history to reveal something to you He's never shown anybody else. That's awesome. Um, now, that's sarcasm, in case you didn't recognize it. Uh, I just don't think that happens. I don't think that happens. Now, you can find things that few people have found because I think that we understand the majority is almost always wrong. And we can see that. You know, look at the popularity of, you know, Katy Perry or whatever. Right? The majority is almost always wrong. So, what we have to see is that when we express doctrine, we will use the language of Christianity. We're not going to invent new words and phrases to explain what we believe. We're going to do our best to use biblical terminology, but at other times we'll use language that Christians have used for 2,000 years. Words like the Trinity to explain the Godhead. All right, So we're not inventing new terms. We don't think that we're alone in the world of Christianity. Um, we, we really ought to make sure before we make a doctrinal statement that we find out where Christianity has been for 2,000 years. That's wisdom, isn't it? Uh, the, when the King James translators translated... They wrote in their um, introduction to the reader that, that says, We've not invented a new thing. We have stood on the shoulders of giants. 
So they used Wycliffe's translation and Tyndale and Matthews and Coverdale and the Bishop's Bible and the Great Bible and the Geneva Bible. They used all of those English translations. They also used the Romant version, the French Olivetan. They used a Portuguese translation. They used their Anna Valera from Spain. and They used all these different, the Dutch translation. They used uh, Martin Luther's German translation. They had all these different translations that helped them as they were translating the Bible into the Bible that we have now. And so they said, we did not invent a new thing. We stood on the shoulders of giants. When we talk about Baptist doctrine, we have not invented a new thing. Right? I, I get asked this question often, you know, do you read commentaries? Do you read theology? All the time. All the time. I don't want to be a, a person who thinks that, that I am the sole arbiter of truth. But the reason I make the statement so strongly about commentaries and about lexicons and about dictionaries and about outside sources is that they are not my authority. The Word of God is my authority. Now, here's the good news. There are commentaries and dictionaries and uh, uh, theologies that agree with the Bible. And so I will use those, but still, none of those are my authority. Because phraseology can change. What The definition of a theological position can change with the whim of the times. The Word of God will never change. It endures forever. And so it's really important that we understand that our foundation, that our sole authority is the Word of God. It would be very arrogant to say it's only my interpretation of the Word of God. Is that right? So I need to make sure that my interpretation of the Word of God agrees with that of other godly men throughout the ages, recognizing that there have been some godly men who have made mistakes through the ages. So what should we do? Ignore them or learn from them? What to learn from them? When someone makes a mistake, that grows into a false religious system. Uh, I'll give you an example, then we'll dive into the message. John Wesley. How many of you have heard of John Wesley? John Wesley was a godly man. He was a very holy man. He was about five feet tall. He wore about a four-and-a-half shoe. I've seen his shoes over in England, about this big. He was a really little guy. One time someone he had long hair to his shoulders. One time someone walked into his house, and his wife was dragging him around the house by his hair. She left him, and he pastored, I think, for, he preached for, I don't know, 27 years or something after his wife left him. And when she left, someone asked, what do you think of that? And he said, I thank God that devil of a woman is gone. <laughs> You know, if Laura had been dragging me around by my hair, I might have that same... This is why I keep it short, just in case, you know. Uh, but Wesley, you know, man, the Lord only knows how many people were saved through Wesley's preaching. How many of you got saved through a Methodist church? Anyone here, you're saved through a Methodist church? Look at this. That's the result of Wesley's ministry. Praise God. Denver, you glad you're saved? Yeah, amen. That, that's, Wesley had a, had a genuine love for the gospel. But he also had a love for what he called the deeper things of God. And he, he was always looking for that deeper mystical experience. His mother, Susanna Wesley, had had him read the Roman Catholic mystics as he was growing up. So they're always looking for some deeper religious experience. And that led to the modern holiness and charismatic movement uh, that has lots of trouble. How many of you recognize the modern charismatic movement has some issues? Well, the roots of that error go back to a godly man named Wesley. So rather than ignoring those errors... Right? We ought to recognize those errors. Praise God for everything Wesley did that was good and right and all the people that were saved. But then we should say, you know what, let's be careful. We don't make that same mistake because if the Lord doesn't return for another 300 years, 
We need solid Bible preaching churches. Amen. So, so that's what I mean. When we identify errors, we're not saying they're wicked and evil people. Wesley was a very godly man. But the results of some of his error, it's caused trouble that we're seeing today. So it would be wise for us to make sure that we don't repeat those errors. All right. So for we had said last week that the first of our Baptist distinctives, and it's the Baptist acrostic, uh, the first is the Bible as our sole authority. The second was the autonomy of the local church. There is no authority over this church other than the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. That's it. The autonomy of the local church. Every other Baptist church in the state could go bad. Grace Baptist doesn't have to if we submit to the Lord and His Word. It's the autonomy of the local church. Praise God, there are other churches that have not gone bad. So we have fellowship and interaction. We support missionaries together. We bring our teens together for youth activities. And we, we encourage pastors come together to encourage each other and teach each other. That's very important. But none of those are authoritative. I, mean, I believe I mentioned last week that Brother Ferrier, pastoring in Piqua, we had good fellowship. I didn't have authority over him. He didn't have authority over me. Now, here's wisdom. I would call Brother Ferrier and say, what do you think about this? What should I do about this? He's, he's been in the ministry a lot longer than me. That's wisdom, right? And so I would take godly counsel. That's a big difference than him saying, okay, this is what you're going to do in this church. And so that keeps a, a movement from bringing error into the ministry. That's, that's God's plan, the autonomy of the local church. Then we talked about the priesthood of the believer, the priesthood of the believer. It's very important. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. We are all priests, the Bible says. So you don't confess your sin to me. Amen? We confess our faults one to another. We confess our faults. We don't have to confess our sins. Now, I might be struggling with something. i got something in my life, so I go to Harry and I ask Harry to pray for me as I'm struggling with this issue. You know, whatever it is. And so I tell him the thing I'm struggling with. He gives me godly counsel. We pray together. All right? And then he can intercede for me. He goes to the Lord and prays for me. Isn't that wonderful? That's what a priest does. But I confess my sin directly to Jesus Christ. I don't confess them to a man. That's the priesthood of the believer. So what that means is, and we'll see the two offices in the church here in a little while, what that means as pastor, you are to esteem me highly for my work's sake, the work of the pastor. But I'm not any, I don't have any greater access to God than the, the youngest believer in this room. Isn't that awesome? There's no haves and have-nots in Christianity. We all have access to the throne of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the priesthood of the believer. Then we said there are two ordinances. Notice we didn't say sacraments. We said ordinances. An ordinance is something that is ordered by Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. Oh, I do want to say this too. If you have not, if you've only been visiting Grace Baptist for a little while, normally we're going verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, through the remodeling process, um, I didn't have time to do the study that I would need to to expound the Word the way that I feel like it ought to be done. So we, we've done other subjects and topics, and uh, here soon we'll be back into verse by verse exposition of the book of Zechariah. All right, look at verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. We'll start in verse 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. All right, so Paul is commending the church at Corinth for keeping the ordinances. Now he will go on and give some instruction about how they are abusing the ordinance, but at least they had them, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances. There are things that are ordered 
by Christ for us to do. How many of you know churches that do foot washing? How many of you think that someone ought to wash the feet of the person next to you this morning? There's that chance. Um, uh, in, at my ordination, Brother Kaiser, um, who had been my Bible teacher, he paneled the questioning. Um, and what happens when a pastor is ordained in Baptist churches is you get a, a panel of preachers to examine that preacher before he's ordained. Now, in some cases, it's just for show. And I think that's wrong. I, I was on a panel, and the young man couldn't answer the questions, and I told him, I said, we can't ordain this guy. We can't do it. He's not ready. And the other guys overrode me. They went ahead and ordained him. He was out of the ministry within a year. Didn't do that young man any good. I offered to take a year and teach him, help him to be ready. That would have been better. Amen? So at an ordination, what happens is a group of preachers come together, and they, they, they really do grill that man to see if he is ready to pastor, if he knows God's Word. Because the Bible says that if a man desires the office of bishop, he desires a good thing, let him first be proved, not a novice. A novice is someone who's new in the Scriptures and doesn't understand them. And so at my ordination, were you there, Brother Ferrier? Were you in the, in the questioning? I think you were. Uh, but it was uh, Larry Clayton and Steve Clayton and Dave McCracken and Mark Rasmussen, uh, my father, and Keith Kaiser. They were all in there questioning me. And Brother Kaiser asked me this question. Um, he said, what are, the two or what are the ordinances? And I said, baptism and the Lord's Supper. He said, why isn't foot washing an ordinance? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be all cool, you know, like I got it all covered. Well, I don't know. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. And he said, well, it's because, yes, Jesus Christ did do it with his disciples, but it was never affirmed in the writings of the Apostle Paul to the churches. And so that's why foot washing is not an ordinance. Dave McCracken said, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> you were not. <laughs> so the, the, the ordinances are only two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. All right? And it's very important that we understand that and that they're not sacerdotal. They're not sacraments. That's a cool word, isn't that sacerdotal? They're not that. They're, they're sacrament. They're not sacraments. A sacrament is something that conveys grace. Well, our grace comes freely. Right? You don't have to do anything to get that grace, or it's not free. And so there's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances. Now, let's get to the new material of today. Our next, the I in your Baptist acrostic, is individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty. And this will be the primary area where we spend our time together today. Um, look with me at Romans 14 and verse 5. Okay, I know this sermon's about to die the death of a thousand qualifications, but I'll give you one more qualification. Um, when we say that these are Baptist distinctives, we're not saying that none of these distinctives exist in other churches. What we're saying is only Baptists would believe all of them. Okay. Um, there are many other churches that only believe in two ordinances, that type of thing. But uh, only, only a Baptist church or a church that has Baptist theology would hold to all of them. All right, Romans 14 and verse 5. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. 
Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Look, a man can be persuaded and people can disagree on things. That is individual soul liberty. I can't make you believe anything. You know, if you're strong enough or powerful enough, you can make someone say something. But you can't make them believe something. And I know that you've heard this illustration. Uh, father tells his son, sit down. Jacob, sit down. Jacob, sit down. And finally, dad goes over and sits the boy down. Jacob turns over and says to Luke, I'm still standing up on the inside. Of course, now I would beat him like pancake batter, but that's another discussion. Um, I know, you're not supposed to beat children. Don't come see me. Don't write me letters. I understand. Um, but the idea is of individual soul liberty is that every man, every individual is a free moral agent before God, has the ability of discernment. It's very important that we get that. Uh, look at verse 12. So then, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. You see that? Whether it's at the judgment seat of Christ for believers or the great white throne judgment for unbelievers, every individual will give account of himself to God. I'm not going to give an account for Harry. I'm not going to give an account for Brother Ferrier. I'm not going to give an account for Brother Zimmerman. I'm not going to give an account for any of those guys. They're going to stand before God themselves. I am going to give an account for myself. Is that right? It's very important that we get that. That's the foundation for individual soul liberty. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.2. Let's look at verse 1 again for the context, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, making it plain and evident. Look at what it says. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What are we doing? We can't deceive people into the kingdom. We can't force people into the kingdom. All we can do is appeal to their conscience through the drawing of the Holy Spirit and His Word. That's all that we can do. That's individual soul liberty. Um, look at Titus chapter 1. This, again, is one of the areas of Scripture that give us the qualifications for the pastor. <clears throat> Look at verse 9, uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. All right, so through my sound doctrine, I hope to be able to convince Skeptics convince people that are trying to teach for gain, that have their own, their own agenda. Now, you've got to understand, everybody has their own agenda. You know, we, we say this often, we all do what we want to do. You know, I wish I could lose weight. No, you don't. If you want to lose weight, you'd lose weight. You do what you want to. You'd rather eat the Big Mac. I'm with you. You know, I'm on a diet right now, so be very careful how you speak to me. <laughs> I'm an angry little man right now. 
Um, we, we all do what we want to do. Isn't that right? We do. That's the whole concept of individual soul liberty. God, it's so amazing. It's almost like God knew what people would be like when He ordained the way that ministry was supposed to be done. You give people the gospel. You teach them. You challenge them through His Word. Every individual, whether a believer or unbeliever, will one day stand before God and give an account for their decisions, for the decisions He has made in this life. Because of this, we believe in the liberty of the soul, liberty of the conscience. No one should be forced to assent to any belief against his will. Okay, now you kids, it doesn't include you. You will believe and do what your parents tell you to do as long as you're in their house. Amen? We talked about this Wednesday night with that uh, uh, girl that's suing her parents for college tuition and all this stuff. A parent has to be able to say, not in my house. Not in my house. Amen? Amen. Now, hopefully, you've, you've trained your children since they were little. You know, when the three-month-old throws a fit while you're changing their diaper, you begin correction there. Right? You don't wait until they're 16 to correct them because it's too late. There's no amens there. I think, do I need to change my sermon this morning? You don't wait until they're 16 to correct them. Amen? Amen. It's got to start early. Um, and so you young people understand that individual soul liberty is for adults. Now, as far as the gospel, no one can make you believe in Jesus Christ. But as far as your behavior, your attitude, when you get up, when you go to bed, um, all those things, that is out of your rule. That's out of your prerogative. Uh, you need to submit to your parents. Um, all right, then, this is why Baptists believe in separation of church and state. And we'll, we'll do separation of church and state for our last point. But the, the foundation for it is individual soul liberty. Right, now, here's this is really important. This liberty does not exempt one from responsibility to the Word of God or from accountability to God Himself. The teaching of individual soul liberty has been distorted in, say, the American Baptist churches. There's a, not just Baptist churches in America, there's a, there's a convention of churches called the American Baptist Convention. And the American Baptist churches, they believe in soul liberty, which means that they allow for homosexuality, they allow for really anything that you want to do uh, because you're a free moral agent before God. Um, that's not what the teaching of individual soul liberty is. It, it is, I can't make someone agree with the Bible, but I still must teach them what the Bible says. And if they will not agree with the Bible, they can't be a member of our church. They can't. And look at 1 Corinthians 1. Now, of course, there was a lot of controversy in the church at Corinth. It was a, it was a sinful church, a carnal church. Um, things like that, like I just said, it was a sinful and carnal church. Uh, this is where, you know, one of Wesley's teaching was absolute perfection. You know, that a believer could get to the place where they don't sin anymore. And then there are other people that believe if a person is carnal, they're not saved. Well, look at verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or, or, or the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. You see that? 
But they're, they're sinful, carnal people. They're saved, sinful, carnal people. Remember, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are. If you think that you are more holy than somebody else, then you don't understand what holiness really is. We're all sinners. Amen? And yet there are behaviors that we're not to allow in the church. Look at verse uh, 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. We've got to agree. As a church, we have to agree. If we don't agree, then there's schisms, and the church is not doing what it ought to do. All right? Look at chapter 5. Verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, if I didn't say that right. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For verily as absent in body but present in spirit... Uh, for verily, uh, sorry, for I verily, as absent in the body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. Now, when somebody tells you, judge not lest you be judged, take them to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, that, that passage that says that, it, it does have a meaning, but it's not that we should never judge sin. All right, Paul is saying he's already done it, and he doesn't just judge the sin, he judges the man. You see that? All right, look at the next verse. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump. Now, this is our church. We're a lump. As ye are leavened, or as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Now, this is talking about the Lord's Supper. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then ye must needs go out of the world. So he's not saying, look, you can't ever hang out with a sinner because then you'd have to leave the world. Is that right? If you couldn't hang out with sinners, we could never go to a family reunion again. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the Lord's Supper. And here's how we know. Verse 11, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So, Clearly, individual soul liberty doesn't mean anything goes in the church. Do whatever you want. No, what it means is I can't stop you from doing those things. I'm going to turn you over to Satan for the destruction of the body. You're going to, you're going to in your flesh, you're going to get the results of your behavior. You live a homosexual lifestyle, you might get AIDS. 
Right? That's what it's talking about. You go out and do that, your body will be destroyed, but the Lord's going to save your spirit. Because if you're saved, there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. Now, I know a lot of people, you saying if I kill somebody, I can still go to heaven? Yes! Absolutely! I can tell you this. I know there are saved people in this room that have been mad enough to kill somebody. Well, the Bible says if you hate your brother, you've, commi- you, you've killed him already. Is that what the Bible says? We, we think too highly of ourselves. We really do. Um, so, anyway, individual soul liberty does not give a person uh, the right to live any way they want to. They're going to stand before God and give an account of it. God's a much tougher judge than you are. Or I am. God will judge those people. All right? Now... Let me talk about this concept of individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty. That is an exclusively Baptist doctrine. And it's the foundation for the liberty that we have in America. Um, Everything was about the right of the individual. That's what our Constitution was founded on. That's what our nation has been founded on. One man, one vote. All right? We are individually free. We're individually free to believe or not believe. We're individually free to believe anything we want. If you want to believe that God is a purple unicorn, you can believe whatever you want to believe. And we can't do anything about that other than try and persuade you or dissuade you of your error. Is that right? And it's very clear that we get that. That is not what the Protestant reformers believed. Let me read this. This is from J.M. Cramp's History of the Baptists. He wrote this in 1868, or it was published in 1868. When Luther blew the trumpet of religious freedom, the sound was heard far and wide, and the Baptists came out of their hiding places to share in the general gladness and to take part in the conflict. For years they had lived in concealment, worshipped God by stealth, and practiced the social duties of Christianity in the best manner they could under the most unfavorable circumstances. Now, I know it's hard to listen to something long like this that's read, but but listen here. Now, they hoped for peace and enlargement and fondly expected to enjoy the cooperation of the Reformers in carrying into effect those changes which they knew were required in order to restore Christian churches to primitive purity. They were doomed to bitter disappointments. The Reformers had no sympathy with Baptist principles, but strove to suppress them. Papists and Protestants, Episcopalians and Presbyterians treated them in the same manner. The Baptists traveled too fast and went too far. If they could not be stopped by other means, the fire must be lighted or the headman's axe employed. Thus the men were silenced. Emperor Charles V, he's the one who protected Luther. Emperor Charles V, whom historians have delighted to honor, ordered the women to be drowned or buried alive. Hundreds were sent out of the world by these methods. Thousands more lost their lives by the slower process of penury and innumerable hardships. The demon of persecution reaped an immense harvest in those days. That's what it was like for the Baptists during the Reformation. That's not taught. That's not taught. But it's really important that we as Baptists, and especially we as Baptist Americans, understand this. The Protestants hate the concept of the individual. 
Now, be honest with me. How many of you think that sounds just strange? Would you raise your hand? That just doesn't make sense. Because I know if, if you, certain homeschooling curriculum will tell you that, that we got our religious liberty from Luther. The idea for religious liberty came from Luther. Yeah, tell that to Servetus, who he burned at the stake. Luther would kill you like that. We really need to understand that. I don't like to take my advice from murderers. How many of you think that's probably a good policy? Right? I heard an old preacher one time say, don't take advice from a loser. John Rawlings, remember when he said that? Don't ever take advice from a loser. Well, don't take your advice from a murderer either, unless he's a repentant murderer like the Apostle Paul. Right? If he's a convinced murderer, let's talk to somebody else. Uh, so, you say, Pastor, is it still that way? Okay, here's a book. There's a popular uh, Protestant website. I think it's called um, American Vision. And you get political information, all that. This is the book that they've been promoting recently. Uh, so I decided to get it and see what it says. And it's, it is the failure of the American Baptist culture. All right, so let me just read this to you. The failure of the American Baptist culture might seem a puzzling topic for a, sympo for a symposium of essays, but the, the contention of the editors of this book is that American culture or civilization has been in the main a Baptist modification of old Catholic and Reformed culture. Okay, and they're honest there. Uh, our, our American liberty was a Baptist idea. Um, did I tell the story of, of John Leland and James Madison last week? Did I tell that story? Okay, remember, James Madison wrote the Constitution. Now, there are some other contributors, but primarily it was James Madison who wrote the Constitution. It wasn't ratified until 1787. Now, remember, the, the Revolutionary War was over in, what, 1781, something like that? 83, 1783. But the Constitution wasn't ratified until 1787. Well, they were having the Constitutional Convention, and the only problem was the people in Virginia weren't going to send Madison. Can you imagine if James Madison wasn't at the Constitutional Convention? They were going to send Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry had defended Baptist preachers. I can't remember the number. Something like 121 Baptist preachers were imprisoned in Virginia simply for preaching the gospel. It's against the law to be a Baptist in Virginia in most of the states before, most of the colonies, before the Declaration of Independence or before the Constitution. So, here we have, there's not going to go. So he meets with John Leland, the Baptist preacher, and the reason the Baptists weren't going to send him and the reason the Baptists didn't want to ratify the Constitution is there was no religious liberty amendment. There was no religious liberty amendment. How many of you have heard of the wall of separation between church and state? How many of you have heard that? That comes from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote. I borrowed Laura's phone and looked it up. I want to read this letter to you. All right, where'd it go? All right, I'm going to, I'm going to read the letter to you. To Messrs. Nehemiah Dodge, Ephraim Robbins, and Stephen S. Nelson, a committee of the Danbury Baptist Association in the state of Connecticut. Gentlemen, so this is the letter that, that this statement comes from. Gentlemen, affectionate sentiments of esteem and approbation, which you are so good as to express toward me on behalf of the Danbury Baptist Association, give me the highest satisfaction. 
My duties dictate a faithful and zealous pursuit of the interests of my constituents, and in proportion as they are persuaded of my fidelity to those duties, the discharge of them becomes more and more pleasing. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. We agree with that statement 100%. Government can only legislate actions, not opinions. Y'all agree with that? Who's he writing this to? The Baptists. Why? Why? Because there had been established religion in America. There were state churches, and you had to believe what those churches taught, or you would be kicked out of the state. You'd have your property taken away from you. You'd be imprisoned. Anyone heard of Harvard College? First president of Harvard College was Henry Dunster. Henry Dunster had gotten a tract of land, hundred and some acres, from a dowry from his wife, an inheritance from his wife, and he was the first president there at Harvard. Well, when Obadiah Holmes, he had come from Rhode Island to have a church service with John Clark and John Crandall. They came to William Witter's house in Lynn, Massachusetts in 1651. They, had a, they were having church. And so these, these government officials came and barged into the house and put them in jail for having a conventicle. Uh, that, that's, not a, that's, that's not an artery in your heart. This is an unauthorized church service. Okay, And so they were arrested for it. And Obadiah Holmes did such a great job of defending his position biblically, but then he was beaten. It's a long story, but he was beaten horribly. He was almost killed. There's a painting of it in the chapel there. He said as he came down, you've beaten me as with roses. God had given him special grace, but he had to sleep on his elbows and knees for the next three months. That's how badly he had been beaten. Simply for believing in believer's baptism and rejecting a state church. All right. Well, when he defended the scriptures and then so bravely accepted his punishment, Henry Dunster was in the crowd. So he started studying the scriptures on the subject of baptism and infant baptism, believer's baptism, and he became persuaded of believer's baptism because if you study the Bible, that's the only position you'll come to. And so when it came time for his daughter to be presented for baptism, he didn't do it. She was a baby. And so what they did was they disfranchised him. They took all of his property and banished him from Massachusetts. So Boston, or so Harvard, is now on Henry Dunster's property that was stolen from him because he believed in believer's baptism. That's what it was like in America. And it was like that for a hundred years. In, seven, in the 1760s, early 1770s, Isaac Backus, the famous Baptist preacher, his mother was imprisoned in Connecticut, put in prison, because she wouldn't pay the congregational pastor's salary. Can you imagine? See, this is why the Baptists didn't want an establishment of religion. So what happened was James Madison met with John Leland in Orange County, Virginia, and he said, if you will persuade the Baptists to send me, if you'll talk to your brethren, and, and they will send me as their representative, 
and we'll get this Constitution ratified, the first order of business will be a religious liberty amendment. We call that the First Amendment. And so when this author says that American culture is mainly a Baptist culture, that's what he's talking about. Individual rights, individual liberty. Let me read on. The failure of American Baptist culture. All right. So he says that American culture or civilization has been in the main a Baptist modification of old Catholic and Reformed culture. The new Christian right, in its attempts to stem the tide of degeneracy in American life, is a Baptistic movement, and this is the reason why the new Christian right finds itself in a, contra in a condition of crisis, confusion, and indeed impotence. The thesis of the, the editors are setting forth then is that American Christianity must return to a full-orbed biblical and Reformed theology and set aside Baptistic, listen, individualism, if it is to have anything to say to modern problems, indeed, if it is to survive. See, we're moving away from the right of the individual right now. The individual mandate for health care. First time ever the government has told you you have to buy a product. And if a doctor doesn't believe in abortion, if a doctor doesn't believe in contraceptives, they have to do it. If a company doesn't believe in it, they have to provide that. Because liberty of conscience is being removed. Why? Because, well, it's better for everybody. These few don't matter. It's better for everybody. No, 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 no. America was founded on the right of the individual. And the masses do not have the right to overrule the conscience of the individual. That is a biblical and a Baptist principle. And when we understand what Satan wants to do with a one-world church, a one-world government, that idea of exclusive ideas must be considered evil. Individual soul liberty. It is the foundation of American culture, but it's also a Baptist distinctive based on the Word of God. Isn't that wonderful? You know, the Bible says in the book of Leviticus that every so many years you're going to set at liberty, set people at liberty. People think that Thomas Jefferson got the idea for the Declaration of Independence from David Hume or John Locke. Well, God said that 3,300 years before David Hume was born. Liberty does not come from the mind of the humanist. Liberty comes from the mind of God. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Where the spirit of oppression is, there's slavery. Individual soul liberty, while a Baptist doctrine is an important American doctrine, we've got to make sure that we don't allow this reformed culture to influence our thinking about the right of the individual. Amen? Amen? It's very important that we get this. The foundation of this, though, is that we're all going to stand before God. Are you saved today? You will. The government can't tell you what to believe, but God can. And you're going to accept that or you're going to reject it to your own blessing or your own peril. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word.